our Advent uh, series, uh, looking at uh, the first half, actually, of John chapter 1. And what do we learn that sort of impacts Advent? So, um, I love the Gospel of John. There's just so much here. And it seems that every sentence is just filled with theological truth. Um, so let's turn. We're going to be reading verses 6, 7, and 8 in John chapter 1. And uh, so not a long uh, passage today, but as I said, every sentence is just packed uh, with truth. And so we're going to look at that and see what difference it makes for us uh, for Advent. So listen carefully. John 1, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel once again to learn more about your son Jesus, who is the light. And often we think we already know him, we know the Christmas story, we know all the characters, we're way too familiar with Advent and everything it represents. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus again, help us to come to know him in a new way, help us to follow him as we never have before. And as always, for any of this, we need your grace. So give us the desire to learn from you this Advent. Speak through your word this morning, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I remember back in the late 1980s, I know that dates me, um, and I was in the Army Reserves and I was assigned for several weeks to a basic training brigade at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And uh, so went down to Kentucky, uh, to Fort Campbell, which is largely in Tennessee, but the post office is in Kentucky. So it's Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And uh, we had one weekend off. And uh, so a bunch of us were able to go visit the Mammoth Caves National Park in Kentucky. And the Mammoth Caves National Park, aptly named, has the largest underground cave system in the United States. And it's hard to describe how uh, big they are and how far underground uh, they stretch. And they've mapped over 350 miles of caves and passageways. And to the best of my knowledge, they haven't finished mapping it all. So here were these great huge caverns, hundreds of feet underground. And in order to get there, the park rangers had strung lights along these dark, wet, narrow, twisting passageways. Um, if you're like claustrophobic, this is probably not something that you're gonna enjoy um, because it's like real tight and you're way down, way, way down. Um, and so you go walking down there, of course I was in the army so I couldn't admit any of that, you know, I had to be tough. Uh, and uh, so we get all the way down to the bottom, and there's this big cave, and they bring you in, and they have these little wooden benches, and we all sat down, and they turned off the lights. 
It was dark. I mean, it was really dark. You couldn't see your hand if you put it right in front of your face. I mean, literally right there. Couldn't see it. And then one of the park rangers moved to the middle of the cave and lit a match. And the whole place lit up. And we were in a cave about the size of this auditorium. And I was sitting there, and I was struck by the fact that we're seeing this great big cave by the light of one tiny little match that could easily blow out. And at that point, everybody was praying that it didn't. So in remembering that incident of darkness and light, and I was struck by our passage for this week, And here the darkness is talking about people. And I thought, how dark our hearts must be. And yet the light of one man, Jesus, is able to flood the darkness of our hearts, all of our hearts, with a light that can't be blown out, that can't be put out, it can't be dropped. Now last week we looked at the first five verses of John chapter 1. And in verse 4 we read, In him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. And we learn that Jesus is not only the life, he's also the light. In fact, that's another claim he makes for himself in John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And of course, it's Jesus himself who's shining in the darkness. And Then in John 1, verse 5, the previous verse to today, says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You can't shine darkness. You don't make darkness flashlights where you can just shine them and and it gets dark. It's dark and you get a regular flashlight and then you can see. And that's actually the way it's gone since the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So God, through his spoken word in Genesis 1, gave light for the physical world. And here in John 1, we read that God, through his living word, the Lord Jesus, gives light for the spiritual world. The world, the the power of his light exposes the darkness of our hearts, and the warmth of his light calls us to him. As David wrote in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And so I believe that Christ wants us to live in him, in the light, and not to live away from him in the darkness of a world that doesn't understand him. And later on, um, the apostle John would write in 1 John, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Well, the reality is it's the same message today. It's a message he wants us to share with others. And for that to happen and for others to believe what we say, we have to know why Christianity is believable and act like we really do believe it. And we have to know why Jesus Christ is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings meaning to each one of our lives. And we must know why it is Jesus who lives and reigns and is coming again, which is what Advent is all about. 
And we have to tell this to people in a way that they can understand. So before we dive in the text, I want to remind you, I did, sort of did this longer last week, shorter version this week. Let's start by looking at John and Jesus. When you come to the Gospel of John, you have to realize it's now A.D. 90, give or take a few years. We don't know exactly. The Apostle John is the last of the disciples left alive. The community of seven churches he pastors, situated along a postal road, stands in awe of him. He's known as John the Elder, and he is elder. Uh, and at this time in the history of the church, things are getting hard. Things are getting confusion. They've, uh, confusing. They've already had one round of persecution, and another much bigger round is coming. And people are starting to question, you know, uh, persecution from the Romans is not your best life now. Well, what's going on here? Is this what Jesus said? Is this what he did? I mean, is this what he was all about? And in the midst of all this confusion, they realize there's only one apostle left, John. All the other apostles are gone. All the other key members of the first church in Jerusalem are gone. Jerusalem itself got destroyed 20 years earlier. Peter and Paul have been martyred for about 25 years. All the rest of the New Testament's been written. Nothing from John. And so to stand in the presence of the last living disciple is to realize he needs to commit to writing as much as he could, as much as he knew before his lips are silenced forever. Matthew, Mark, Luke, already written, already well circulated. Everyone knew those stories by heart. And so John's filling in the gaps. He's skipping a lot of those stories and substituting the ones that people didn't know and hadn't heard and stories that hadn't yet been written down. And so John has a lot of different stories. He has a few of the same ones, but he has a lot of different ones. And so here they are. We come to John, and we get the words, the thoughts, the feelings of the last living disciple, the last person left alive who walked with Jesus. I think we need to listen to them well. This Advent, it's time to come and just sit at the feet of John the Elder and listen to what he has to say about the Lord, because that's what he writes about. He writes to tell us about Christ the Lord. And in these opening verses, John introduces us to what's really the centerpiece for the whole gospel. Usually the first 18 verses where we're going to be this month is referred to as the prologue to the gospel of John. It's a little bit like an introduction to a film where sort of the major themes of the story are shown in just little uh, snippets. And so the references we get here to things like life and light and glory are all things he's going to expand on uh, in the rest of the book. He wants us to see, verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. How did we receive it? He tells us in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's why he wrote this book. We don't get the theme for the Gospel of John till the end of the book in John 20. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's turn back to the text, verses 6, 7, and 8. We're going to 
start with verse 6. The first thing we see is that John was sent. John was sent. It's very simple. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Well, last week we looked mostly at the person of Jesus and the things that John said about him in his gospel. Well, now we turn to the second person that's mentioned, and that's John the Baptist. So the John here in verse 6 is John the Baptist. And he's mentioned in order that we could learn about his witness to Christ. So we tend to overlook the importance of John the Baptist and of his ministry. We focus on the ministry of Christ, as we should. And we remember that John the Baptist was only the forerunner of the Lord. John the Apostle says that John the Baptist came to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's his reason for existing. That's his reason for being there. Even John the Baptist himself is quoted as saying later in John 3, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And yet if John the Baptist hadn't lived in that age, and if the preparation, uh, the way of the Lord hadn't been his primary ministry, I think no doubt that we would still look back on him with high praise, uh, much like we would look back on Isaiah or Daniel or Jeremiah or Amos or any of the other great Old Testament prophets. And certainly John was a charismatic figure. We read that hordes of people went out to hear him, much as they did to hear Jesus later on. Now his following was so substantial, it disturbed the priests in Jerusalem, and they sent delegates delegates to investigate uh, what John was preaching and teaching. And Mark tells us that some of those priests also repented and were baptized as a sign they had turned from their sins. So in some sense, John is a pivot in biblical history. We read in Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. And that means that John is really the last of the Old Testament prophets. After him, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, which was entered from that time forward by faith in Christ. And John earns, John the Baptist earns the praise of Jesus. He said about John in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, which last I checked was everybody, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That last verse probably refers to the fact that those who came after John and believed in Jesus would receive the Holy Spirit. But it also implies John's extraordinary humility. Jesus said that the one who humbles himself will be exalted, and John certainly did that. He called himself a voice crying in the wilderness. And you can't see a voice, you can only hear it. So it's John's role, it's John's pleasure merely to be the herald of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John's concern is solely that Jesus would be magnified, whether by his life or by his death. And so in this, he's a true and faithful forerunner. So the first thing we see, he's sent from God. Second, we see that John's a witness. John was a witness, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, we don't call him John the Witness. We call him John the Baptist. Some of us call him John the Presbyterian, but 
getting a little trouble for that. And that's primarily because he baptized Jesus. However, when John the Apostle refers to John the Baptist in the first chapter, he doesn't mention John's ministry. He doesn't mention the baptism of Jesus. He focuses solely on his witness to Christ. So in this sense, the witness of John the Baptist takes his place in the first chapter of the gospel as an established historical testimony so that we could learn that the one who is the light of the world is identified historically for men and women to respond in faith. And we see this emphasis upon John's witness by the way in which John the Apostle handles all the material related to Christ's forerunner. Most notable is the absence from John's gospel of many aspects of John the Baptist's ministry. They're all present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, John eliminates all references to his preaching of repentance and all mention of him as the herald of God's kingdom. Even more significant than all those differences is the fact that the Apostle John doesn't report the baptism of Jesus at all. Even though he shows that Jesus is present in and around the Jordan River during John's ministry. And even though the baptism of Jesus is sort of the crowning point of John's ministry and all the other Gospels. But apparently, it didn't much interest the Apostle John. Instead, everything's focused on Jesus. And in place of baptism, there's Jesus. And in place of the act, there's the proclamation. And the final proof of this sort of unique interest on the part of John is all the other Gospels say that John came preaching. But the Gospel of John says that John came as a witness. And witness replaces preaching found in the other Gospels. So in the Apostles' evaluation, John the Baptist emerges as the first and greatest witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's quite the title to carry around for the rest of eternity. The first and greatest witness to Jesus. Someday you can ask him, what's that like? What was it like to be the guy that says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? And finally, most importantly, we get to the third point and we see in verse 8, John was not Jesus. Now that sounds pretty obvious, but it's actually really important. Verse 8 says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It would be almost impossible to underestimate the popularity of John the Baptist. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote more about John the Baptist than he wrote about Jesus. As late as A.D. 200, another 110 years after what we're reading here, some of John the Baptist's followers still worshipped him as the Messiah, which means it's gone through one or two generations now. In Acts 19, we meet believers who only know about John's baptism. This part of the story takes place some 60 years. Acts 19 is 60 years before John wrote. That's when the, John the Baptist is at the height of his popularity. 
And it shows us the importance of him coming right at the beginning of John's gospel. John is, or Jesus has just been established as the light by the apostle John. And so now it's critically important for his readers to hear that John the Baptist is not that light. Because a lot of people thought he was. And at this point, we should see we have an outline of what makes the witness of John effective as Christ's forerunner. And this is important because it tells us how we too can be effective as we seek to bear witness to Christ. It's stated, this whole outline, this little evangelistic outline is given to us in verses 7 and 8. It has three parts. John writes that the Baptist sent from God, one, was not the light. Two, he was sent to bear witness to the light. And three, he was sent that men might believe through him. And that's the outline that John employs in all the verses immediately following the prologue. The second half, or really the second two-thirds of John chapter 1. Verses 19 to 28 show that John the Baptist was not the light. Verses 29 to 34 picture him pointing to the light. And verses 35 to 51 shows how that witness resulted in people coming to Christ and coming to believe in Christ. Now, what does that mean for us personally? Well, in the first place, John the Baptist is aware that he was not the light. And that's important because all successful witnessing to Jesus Christ has to start with that self-realization. Whenever a Christian, a minister, a writer, a teacher, whoever, gets to thinking there's something important about him or her, then he or she will usually stop being effective as a witness for Jesus. The testimony of my life, of how my life was changed by Christ, will just become the testimony of my life. So that's the first thing. He's not the light, and neither are you. Second, John bore witness to the light. And this is important as well, because there's always people, maybe shy, uh, uncertain, introverted Christians who feel that they're bearing a witness simply because they're living the Christian life. They're refusing to do bad things, and they're doing other good things. And they live it at work, at school, in their homes. And as important as that may be, it is in and of itself not witnessing. This is what Paul Little, the author of a helpful little book called How to Give Away Your Faith, which had to be written like 40 years ago. It's, it's still really good. Little. It was written by Paul Little. Um, but he says all that living is what we call pre-evangelism. It's basically earning you the right to be heard. Earning the right to be heard means you actually have to say something. They can't hear if you don't speak. Now, living the faith is an essential basis for an effective witness. If we don't live what we profess, then our profession will be discredited. But living the faith is not by itself witnessing. Witnessing means speaking to others about Jesus. And that's implied in the very word itself. Witnessing is a legal term. It points to verbal testimony rendered in a court of law. Testimony and witness are key 
concepts that occur throughout the Gospel of John. And as legal terms, they have to do not with uh, our opinions or our experiences, but with objective facts. A witness at a trial is asked to testify to what he or she actually saw or heard, not what they thought or not what they speculated. Quite simply, they're asked to tell the truth. Well, if we're going to do truth-telling effectively, we have to be able to tell who Jesus is, what he said about the depravity of man, why his death and resurrection are the essential elements in the solution to the problem of man's sin and how one comes into a personal relationship with Jesus. And we need to be able to say those things. Finally, the witness has to be given with the object in mind that other people would believe in Christ. I'm not saying these things to tell you about what great stuff has happened in my life. The goal is that great stuff would happen in your life. John, we're told in verse 7, bore witness to the light that all might believe through him. So it should be obvious, and yet it's so necessary simply because it's possible for someone to become so mechanical in his or her witness that you go through all the motions without actually seeking uh, or praying for the other person to respond to Christ in faith. If we could remember that, we'd find talking about Christ to be far more exciting. You know, when our goal isn't, I'm doing this thing, but our goal is that this other person would believe and know Jesus and that we would learn that winning the argument is far less important than winning the person. So a couple conclusions come out of that. Uh, first, when a witness is given, that is with the awareness on the part of the one speaking that he or she is not the light, it's just pointing to the light in order that men and women might believe, then men and women believe. That's God's way of doing things. He says that he's chosen to save men and women by the foolishness of preaching, and this means by the foolishness of talking about Jesus. Maybe foolish in the eyes of others. Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in John 1, we get a demonstration of that. We're going to see this uh, over the next few weeks. After John has borne his witness uh, to the light, he declares in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in the later part of the chapter, we get the results of all this witnessing and testimony and all this stuff John says. First, there's two disciples, one of whom is Andrew. Andrew finds his brother Simon. Simon becomes a follower. And then there's Philip. And then there's Nathaniel. And then there's others. And you see the outcome of not thinking you're the light and pointing to the light. And these people believe. And it's almost like dominoes. Clearly, when a witness to Christ is given in the way that John the Baptist gave it, people believe. The second thing is related to this. It's simply if you'll witness in this way, men and women will believe because of your testimony. Now, the number seven is a really big number in the Gospel of John. There are seven signs or miracles. There are seven 
I am statements by Christ. There are several other lists of sevens in the gospel. And John mentions seven witnesses. So we have the witness of Christ himself, the witness of God the Father, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the scriptures, the witness of Christ's work, and the witness of John the Baptist. That makes six. But there's one more. And that's the witness of ordinary men and women, which would include you and I in this last category of witnesses. What does that mean? Well, it means that God regards your testimony as being important enough to be included along with all the other testimonies to the person and work of Christ. Your testimony may not have a very wide scope. It may not go to lots and lots of people. It's certainly not as world-embracing as the testimony of the Scriptures. It may not be as spectacular as the testimony of John the Baptist. You know, you don't have to start eating funny food and wearing funny clothes. Um, you can if you want. It's not a thing, but you don't have to. Um, but it's letting us know that... Whatever your testimony is, and you may think it's ordinary and boring and plain and nobody wants to hear it, God's saying it's still important. You know a special aspect of Christ's work to which only you can adequately point. You know what he's done in your life. And what's more, as you do talk about what he's done and therefore witness to him, men and women will come to know him as their Savior. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. I'm going to have a couple slides coming. I don't know who has the clicker. I'm looking. Somebody waved their hand. Uh, okay. Yellow is not my favorite color. But I've come to know the story of Vincent Van Gogh, and I've come to value yellow differently. The famous Dutch painter, uh, Van Gogh, Sadly, I actually grew up in a Christian home, and he tossed that truth away. And he sank into depression and a life of self-destruction. And most of his life is not very pretty. Um, he, he, he does a bunch of terrible things, mostly to himself. And by the grace of God, near the end of his life, as he began to embrace truth again... His life takes on hope, and he gives that hope color. So one of the best-kept secrets of Van Gogh's life is the truth he's discovering in this gradual increase in his paintings of the color yellow. Yellow invokes hope and the warmth and the truth of God's love. But in this painting, there's not a lot of yellow. It is probably his most famous painting called Starry Night. And uh, it's also one of, painted in one of his most depressive periods. And so you have a yellow sun and some swirling yellow stars, but they're kind of muted because at that point he thought truth was only present in nature. And tragically, there's a church in the bottom center, and it stands tall in this painting, and it should be a house of truth. It's just about the only item other than the dead tree um, that has no traces of yellow. But if I could have the next slide. This is the raising of Lazarus. It's a little hard to see. Lazarus is down towards the bottom left. 
And by the time Van Gogh painted The Raising of Lazarus, his life was on the mend, and he began to face the truth about himself, and the entire picture is bathed in yellow. In fact, Van Gogh put his own face on Lazarus to express his own hope in the resurrection. Yellow tells the whole story. Life can begin all over again because of the truth of God's love. Each of us, whether with actual yellow or metaphorical yellow, can begin to paint our lives with the fresh hope of a new beginning. Some, like Van Gogh, need to start opening their hearts to God. Some need to hop back on the tracks after failure has derailed them. Some simply need a time of retreat to discover once again God's restoring spirit. Some are suffering through broken relationships and are struggling to glue together the remaining chunks of their life. Others are enduring a particularly stressful time at work and need to settle into a more balanced life. Some have lost jobs and need to hear from God that he's still with them. Some are swirling in an internal vertigo as a result of illness. Maybe others are struggling with a college age or adult child. And some are grieving the death of a friend, a spouse, a parent, or a child. Sometimes each of us needs to begin life all over again. Someone does, almost all the time. If the promise is that we can begin again, the question is how? And the first thing we need to do is return to the River Jordan, where prophet, last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, is urging his listeners, both then and now, to begin again. And he does it by pointing to the light. Beloved, the Christians to whom John originally penned this great gospel lived in a world of religious and cultic growth, false teachings of health and wealth, campaigns to save the republic or the empire or the nation, making the Roman law or our judicial system absolute and dealing with the intolerance of multinational and multicultural correctness. And they didn't go to church to hear more of that stuff, nor did they go to church to hear the pastor incorporate those things into his message. Those first readers and hearers of John's gospel were hungry and thirsty for Jesus. They needed spiritual food and drink. They needed to come back to Christ, to come to his table and be fed. They were in darkness and seeking the light of the world. They were guilty, unworthy sinners in need of a lamb to bear their transgressions. They eagerly read this gospel of Christ, the Son of God, because he gave them what the world could not. And there are days when, like them, we're the ones in darkness. We're the ones that can't see where we're going. And we need light. Those of us who are most profoundly aware of our own sin, our own need, and who in consequence most deeply feel the wonders of the grace of God that's reached out and saved them, even us, are those who are most likely to talk about themselves as objects of God's love 
in Christ Jesus. It's because we are the beloved, the one so loved by him that he'll change us and transform us by grace alone. A shallow understanding of how much we're loved makes us weak witnesses. We don't feel that we have much to say. But the reality is, if Christ has changed your life, you have a lot to say. That's what John is trying to get across. Don't just believe the gospel is true, but believe that it's true for you. Believe that it's true for your family. Believe that it's true for your children. That's what's going to make us people who've been transformed, who recognize and see the work of Christ in our lives, to have that kind of love for families and neighbors and bosses and students, even the people sitting next to us at church. And maybe when we believe that, perhaps you'll even find yourself noticing the color yellow a whole lot more than you did before. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Oh, Lord, our Lord, thank you that you've given us a story about light and darkness in the Gospel of John, a story that reminds us we're sinful men and women who love to live in the darkness but desperately need to live in the light, a story that reminds us we need a Savior who comes as the light of the world in order to save desperate men and women. Thank you for showing us that Jesus came to save people like us, and he calls us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. This Advent, we look forward to his coming, we look forward to his saving, and we give you great thanks for sending Jesus, who is the light. And this morning we are reminded, and so we pray, he's also the King, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.